Good morning. Today's Bible reading comes from 1 John 5 verses 6 to 12. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth, for there are three testifies, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that has given us about his Son. The one who believes in his Son of God has a testimony with him himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in testimony God has given about his Son. And this is testimony. God has given us eternal life, and life is in his Son. The one who, the one who has the Son of life, the one who does not have Son of life of God does not have life. Thank you. Well, this is not our um, uh, an ordinary uh, three-point reformed sermon uh, this morning. We have instead a courtroom drama playing out in our mind's eye because today we are entering into a courtroom scene, actually. Jo- John, what he's presenting here in his letter is is really a uh, um, what you would see in a courtroom show, you know. So step with me, if you will, in your mind's eye into the spiritual courtroom. We can imagine the scene. You actually have the role of being both the judge and the jury. It is your job to decide the outcome of the case. And the question today in our court is to decide whether or not we shall believe in the Lord Jesus as our, the Lord of our lives. So arguing for the defence, arguing in the affirmative that we should in fact uh, believe in Jesus is the Apostle John. Uh, So he is the defence attorney in our story and arguing uh, for the prosecution that we shouldn't uh, is the devil, the world and ourselves. And um, the way a courtroom normally works, at least here in Victoria, is that the prosecution presents their case first. And so the devil steps up. And with the eloquence of an archangel, uh, he starts his prosecution. He has the skill to deceive. He is, uh, you know, we might not like him, uh, but we do need to respect the fact that he is the prince of lies and and the highest created being. And so, uh, so he steps up and begins his argument. And he says to us, who is Jesus really? Is he really the son of God? like the church keeps on insisting, you know, sure, he was a great teacher, I'll admit that, that's for sure. I mean, look at how many people he managed to gather around him. See how many followers he has, if you will. He, at one point, you know, his Instagram had 5,000 men besides the women and children, hanging on his every word. But perhaps that's just because, says the devil, he was a little bit like Oprah, you know. You get a bread and fish, you get a bread and fish, Everyone gets a bread and a fish. Yes, he was a charismatic speaker. He was a good teacher, maybe even a good moral teacher, says the devil. Maybe he was even a prophet, but was he really God? Argument one, 
his deception about Jesus' identity. And then the devil sits down and the world gets up. And the world, the second attorney in the case, takes a slightly different approach and begins, why would you want to believe in Jesus? You know, we've heard from my co-counsel that he shouldn't be believed in because, you know, he's not God. But my argument is, why would you want to in the first place? After all, how can you be sure that Christianity is the only way to get to God, to the divine? I mean, that sounds so exclusive, doesn't it? So judgy, so intolerant, so narrow-minded. Jesus, the only way to salvation? Surely not. Besides, why would you want to devote your life to him? He isn't relevant, he's not necessary to get success, to, to get on with what life is really on about anyway. Jesus doesn't help you become rich. He doesn't make you successful. He doesn't make you popular. The best job, the corner office, the big house, the millions of followers or whatever, these are the things you should want. But believing in Christ costs you. So why would you want to follow him? Argument two, following Jesus is costly, so don't do it. And then the world sits down and the self gets up, chest out proud, sure of itself. And the self begins Why would you want to believe in Jesus? Because we don't need him. After all, we are self-made, self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-whatever. We can get on with life perfectly fine by ourselves. We are good, moral people. Our good outweighs our bad, you know. We volunteer at the football club. We give our money away. We obey the law, by and large. Why would we need a saviour? Besides, if I believe in Jesus, you know, that means we have to surrender. Surrender for what? You only surrender when you know you've lost the battle or when you're too cowardly to fight. So why would I want to surrender my life to the Lord? And the crux of the self's argument is that I'm essentially a good person. I don't need to be saved. I don't need a saviour. And I certainly don't need to surrender to a new Lord of my life if I am the Lord of my life. And the arguments sound convincing. And so the prosecution rests, having made these three arguments. Jesus isn't really God. You shouldn't submit to him. Following Jesus is costly, so don't do it. You do you. And thirdly, we're basically good people. We don't need Jesus to save us, so don't believe in him. And so the prosecution rests and they sit down. Now, stepping out of the courtroom scene for a moment, friends, can we be honest here for a moment? Most of us, I think probably all of us, have heard and felt these arguments. We've heard them in our lives. We felt them perhaps in our hearts. Can we be honest for a moment and say that at some point maybe they have caused us to doubt whether following Jesus is really worthwhile. Maybe we have doubted whether Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe we've doubted whether it's worthwhile following Christ because it is costly and it does require sacrifice. And we see our friends and family live their lives however they want. We see our enemies succeed and get wealthy and successful. And if we're really honest, sometimes it seems like the sacrifice looks a little bit lousy compared to the life of apparent freedom they have, right? We've felt this. Maybe 
our doubt has even been about whether we're really all that bad if we're honest with ourselves. I mean, do we really need to be saved? I think if we're honest with ourselves, perhaps sometimes we doubt whether we actually really need Jesus. Are our sins really that bad? Do we really need Him? And that leads us to doubting whether it's actually necessary to submit to a Savior. I think most of us, at some point, have faced these kinds of doubts. But that's why we need John. That's why we need the Apostle John, the defense attorney, to get up. And so John gets up and in response he says, well, I'm going to take a totally different approach to this uh, case. I am going to call in five different witnesses to show you why you should believe in Jesus. And here they are. The first one is the witness of baptism. And this is verse, so verses 6 to 8 sort of cover the first three witnesses. So I'll read, I'll read it maybe a few times. Verse, uh, verse 6, if you've got your Bible still with me. No, with, yeah, with you. Read with me. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And for, these, uh, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. And so the first witness being called to the witness stand is Jesus' own baptism. Now, that's the water that John is referring to here. This witness testifies actually against Satan's argument that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, just a prophet, not really God. Because the, the water, the baptism here, refers to when Jesus was baptized. Now, water is the baptism and blood is the crucifixion, and they bookend Jesus' ministry. And so what John is saying here is that from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right through to the end where Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, this whole thing has proved Satan wrong, has, proved, uh, has proven that Jesus is in fact God. So let's look at the, wit uh, the witness of the baptism that testifies against Satan's argument. So what happens at the baptism? Well, Jesus comes to John uh, and he comes as a, a sinless man. He comes to enter into the water, to the river, to be baptized by John the baptizer. Different John to this John, and I know that's confusing, but they were both called John. Uh, and so John objects, John the baptizer objects and says, No, Lord, I'm not worthy. You should be baptizing me, not me, you. But Jesus replies, he says, Allow it for now, this is Matthew 3 verse 15, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John baptizes Jesus. In other words, this baptism is necessary. I need to do this so that, I can, uh, so that my work will be acceptable, so that righteousness will be fulfilled. And so Jesus actually uh, aligns himself and joins himself with the other people, the sinners that are needing to be baptized and washed clean. And then when Jesus comes up out of the water, what happens? When Matthew 3 verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water and the heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You are to listen to him. And so Jesus' baptism is this witness that Jesus is more than just a prophet, 
more than just a good teacher, more than just a good moral man. God himself in Jesus' baptism says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is no mere man. Baptism testifies that he is in fact the divine son of God. So we must believe in him. That is the first witness. The second witness is the witness of the blood. And so the water steps down, the blood, gory, sits down in the dock. And this is about Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, the other end of his earthly ministry, where he came to suffer in our place. And this witness speaks against the idea that we're really not all that bad and that really we're basically good in principle and that really we don't really need a saviour. The witness of the blood says that's just not true. God loved you so much that he would come and die in your place. What is it that happens at the cross? What is it that happens that the blood witnesses to? Why is it that Jesus was crucified? Well, it was to reconcile, to, to build a bridge so that everyone who would believe would come to God. You see, there's this, this gap that exists between mankind and between God. A chasm so big and so wide and so cosmically massive that it cannot be crossed by human effort. And even the smallest sin, the smallest misstep has placed us on the other side of the chasm and God is on, on the other side. And He is so holy and perfect and, and sinless that our, that our sin and our imperfection, if we were to be in His presence, that would cause us to be consumed, to be burnt up, to be destroyed in His presence. I mean, we just sang about that, right? What other, um, <clears throat> what other name, uh, what other glory consumes like fire? That's what we sang about. That's that. God's glory is so good and so pure and so holy that it consumes and burns up things that are impure and unglorious in His presence. We need someone to stand in our way of that holy fire, to take the burning up, the consumption for us, to shield us to cover us. And on the cross, Jesus does that thing. And the fact is the cross was necessary. The fact is we needed to be saved. And the fact is that proves just how false the argument of the self really is. None of us are good enough to cross this chasm. None of us are good enough to stand in God's presence. None of us have the ability to stand before God and say, look at the great, perfect life I lived. You know, I gave money to the poor. I obeyed the rules, mostly. Therefore, you must accept me on the basis of my good life. The Bible's consistent witness is that there is no one who is righteous, not even one, apart from Jesus himself. And if you pause for a moment and consider your life and you're honest with yourself, do you really want God to judge you on the basis of your life? All those secret sins that no one sees, do you really want God to judge you on the basis of your life? You don't. The crucifixion, the blood is the witness that says, we believe in Jesus because He is the only way to bridge that gap. 
He's the only one who can stand in our place. He's the only one who can live a life uh, that is so righteous that he can confidently stand in God's presence. And if we want to be covered, if we want to be shielded, if we want to be accepted, if we don't want to be burnt up by God's glory, then we need to find ourselves in Christ, covered by his perfect life, judged on the basis of his life, not our own. God's judgment is always on the basis of works. It's just whose works is he going to judge you on? Yours or Jesus's? So we submit, we believe in Jesus because the witness of the blood says, if you don't, you will be burnt up. The cross proves that the self's argument is false. So that's the witness of the water, the witness of the blood. Then there's a third witness, which is the witness of the Holy Spirit. And specifically that the witness of the Holy Spirit agrees with these other two witnesses. I read again from verse 6. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement. Friends, how is it that we come to believe in Jesus? Where does our faith come from? How can our hearts change from the self-reliance and from the self-aggrandizement that we want? How is it that we move from that to believe in God? Well, we need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. He is the only person who can make the truth of Scripture real for us. In fact, we are hopelessly lost without God working in our hearts. We are actually His natural enemies unless the Spirit convinces us and changes us from the inside, from the inside of our hearts. We need to know from inside that we need to know God. That's what Paul writes about in Romans 8.16. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. That's Paul writing. Or Jesus says in John 16, uh, verse 18 to 13, when he comes, he will, this is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. And he, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears and will declare to you what is to come. So Jesus himself says we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, of our unrighteousness, of the fact that God will judge, has judged Satan and found him wanting, will judge according to works. And he is the spirit of truth. So he is necessary uh, to believe. He is the third witness. So we need this spirit because he's the spirit of truth. Now, in the Jewish court of law, uh, something wasn't considered to be true unless it was corroborated by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you had three witnesses, it was sort of an open and shut case. And that's why the spirit is here the third testimony. We have witness number one, the water, witness number two, the blood, Witness number three, the spirit of truth, and all three are in agreement. That's what, uh, what John is writing about here. 
And so it must be true according to the logic of the law courts of the day. Therefore we must submit and believe in Jesus. So that's the witness of the water, the witness of the blood, the witness of the Spirit. Ah, but wait. If you phone now, there are two more witnesses. The next witness is God the Father himself. And so, verse 9. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. And the one who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about the Son. So the next witness to step into the witness stand is God himself. The best, the highest, the strongest witness of all. Now notice what John says about God's testimony. God himself claims that Jesus is his son. God the Father testifies that Jesus is his divine son. And so John's basic argument here is, even if you don't believe any of those other witnesses, if you don't find any of them convincing, you have to believe this one simply because he's God. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the modern era, puts it this way. He says, God is to be believed even if all men contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. One word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men, whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity. God's word is against them all, for he knows everything infallibly. One of, uh, of his own son, he knows as no one else can. Of our condition before him, he knows. Of the way to pardon, he knows. There is nothing in God that could lead him to err or make a mistake. And it were blasphemy to suppose that he would mis mislead us. It were an insult to him, such as we may not venture to perpetrate for a moment to suppose that he would willfully mislead his poor creatures by proclamation of mercy which meant nothing or by presenting to them a Christ who could not redeem them. The gospel with God for its witness cannot be false. Whatever may the witness against it be, the witness of God is greater, and we must believe the witness of God. Is it not true that we live in a time where all men seem to want to contradict God? Where every philosopher of the age or the sages of antiquity, argue against God's existence. Scripture here reminds us that let all men be false if God's one word be true. God is the ultimate witness and we must believe him simply because he is God. So that's the witness of God. And then finally, there's the witness that lives inside each of us. So the witness of baptism says Jesus is the Son of God, believe in Him. The witness of the blood says Jesus came to save you, so you have to believe that you need to be saved. The witness of the Holy Spirit says it's all true, so you must believe in Him. And the witness of God the Father says even I agree, so you must believe in Jesus. But then John changes the game and he gives us this final witness. He says there is one more and that witness lives inside you. Verse 10. 
The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. And so in a shocking twist in the courtroom scene, John says, Judge, I would like you to sit down in the witness stand. You know, even if you don't believe any of the other witnesses, believe the testimony that comes from inside as a believer. This is so helpful when we struggle with doubt. Now listen, John isn't pointing us to a past conversion experience or some previous activity of God in our lives. He's not saying, look back at what God has done for you, although of course that has tremendous value. Sometimes we do need to remind ourselves about what God has done. I mean, we have a whole, uh, as we're working with our young people and the youth, uh, one of the things we're teaching them this term is that there's a whole class of Psalms that are called these remembrance Psalms that uh, talk about what God has done. So we can look back to those things and it can strengthen our faith. But that's not what John is doing here. John's not pointing back to some work of God that has done in the past. He's saying, right now, the Holy Spirit is working inside of you, witnessing to you that Jesus is the Lord, and therefore you should trust Him. And so we need to ask ourselves, where are we putting our confidence, our hope, our trust in today? As the Holy Spirit works with us, works within us, our hope should be more and more in Christ. Again, in, in Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. There is a witness that lives within us. Do you feel that you can trust God more and more over time? Do you feel this witness grow in your heart? Do you feel strengthened as the Holy Spirit works in you? Yes, there are minor dips. There are dips of time when we will doubt more and times when our faith will be stronger. But over time, there should be a growth as the Holy Spirit works in you. And if there isn't, we need to listen to those other witnesses. There is a witness that testifies even within you, the Holy Spirit which agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. So there are the five witnesses. And with that then, the defence rests. The prosecution has made its case. Following Jesus isn't worth it. Jesus isn't really God, so why submit to him? Jesus, following Jesus is costly, so don't do it. You don't need Jesus to save you because you're not that bad. And then the defence has stood up and it's made its case by calling in witness after witness. Witness of the water, baptism says, no, really, Jesus is God, so you should believe in him. The witness of the blood says you actually are sinful and you need someone to save you. The witness of the Holy Spirit says that's true, so you should believe in Jesus. The witness of the Father says, even if you doubt everyone else, trust me because I'm God and I'm making a claim about this. And then we even put ourselves in the witness box and said, there's a spirit within us, the Holy Spirit, which resonates with the truth. Even when we don't feel it, deep down, the Holy Spirit makes it real. And now it is up to us to render the verdict. We have to decide, in a sense, for ourselves. Will we accept the case made by the prosecution or the defence? Will I believe in Jesus? 
And this is no small thing to consider. Because whatever choice we make, wherever our faith goes, it has eternal implications, ramifications for us. You know, John finishes this section, he says, the one who has the Son has life. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. So where will you go? Will you accept the testimony of Scripture, of God, of the Holy Spirit, of His blood and His baptism? As for me and my, <laughs> my household, we will choose the Lord. And when you believe, you have life. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that once again this morning we can come and we pray that you will convict us wherever we might stand today. Perhaps we are in one of these belief highs where it seems impossible to not, not even consider believing. Or perhaps we come this morning saying, yes, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Convict us, we pray, through the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to see the testimony that you have given about, uh, about Jesus. May your spirit agree with our spirit. And may we trust in Jesus as the Lord of life. For we know that it is true, O Lord, that if we have the Son, we have life. Let that not just be a mental truth for us, but a deep truth within our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.